This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about civil discourse, chit-chat, and conversations. I've been thinking about one of the saddest things I've heard in a long time, that we've recently begun to find it a waste of time to listen to other people. That pretty much breaks my heart, because what could possibly be more important? My guest today is Celeste Headley. Celeste is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and author of Herd Mentality and We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. In her 20-year career in public radio, she's been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Radio and anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. She also served as co-host of the national morning news show, The Takeaway, from PRI and W. NYC and anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for PBS World Channel. Celeste's TEDx talk sharing 10 ways to have a better conversation has over 19 million total views to date. As an NPR host and journalist, Celeste has interviewed hundreds of people from all walks of life. Through her work, she has learned the true power of conversation and its ability to both bridge gaps or deepen wounds. In a time when conversations are often minimized to a few words in a text message and lack of meaningful communication and dialogue abounds, Celeste sheds a much-needed light on the lost and essential art of conversation. Welcome, Celeste, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with what's wrong with the way people are talking to each other now. Um, obviously, a, a number of things, but maybe pick what you think that the top one is, and we'll start there. Oddly enough, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way people are talking <laughs> um, necessarily, because people are are the the problem is is that they're just talking and they're not conversing. You know, a conversation is a mutual exchange of ideas. And what's happening right now is not conversation. It's just uh, people talking in the same vicinity. So one person is talking and saying what they know and believe and like, um, and then the other person waits for that other person to stop talking and then says what they know and believe and like. And it's almost as though the other person could step away or be replaced by someone else and it wouldn't change what we say at all. Um, we're just kind of walking resumes. Uh, so if, if we really want to change our conversations, we have to start responding instead of just talking. Well, and you talk about that, that there was a study where students were hooked up and they were told to just talk um, and, and they like talking about themselves and they really just like talking and, and the brain reacted in, a, in accordance with it, regardless of whether anyone else was listening. Was that surprising to you? That was that was very surprising. And, you know, I found that study early on. You're talking about a study from Harvard in 2012. And uh, it was really an epiphany for me uh, because... It's it, in a way it kind of removes the blame. So basically, what Harvard found and that study has been replicated since is that talking about yourself is extremely pleasurable. It activates the same pleasure center in the brain as heroin, um, and it's addictive. And and so yes, of course we find it difficult not to talk about ourselves. Yes, of course we find it difficult not to turn every conversation onto things that we know and care about because it, it feels so good when we do it. And that really completely changed my understanding of what's really going on. 
And there's an evolutionary connection, right? That we as as animals um, have this unique ability to talk and converse and that it sort of allows us to progress in the way we have over the last thousands of years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, you know, it's been a mystery for a very long time as to why Homo sapiens was the species that survived. Many people either don't know or have forgotten that at one point there were a number of different human species. A Neanderthal was the one that existed at exactly the same time as Homo sapiens. And frankly, Neanderthal was a much stronger, uh, more intimidating and impressive specimen uh, we would lose in a fight. A direct fight with Neanderthals. But what we have discovered is that it, it's our communication skills that helped us to dominate. It's our uh, communication skills, the way that we can collaborate, the way that we can communicate in very specific ways um, that allowed us to really survive and thrive. I, and we've sort of forgotten that. I, I'm amazed all the time at all the different ways we're trying to replace the very thing we do best. It's like taking an Olymp- uh, somebody who's an Olympic athlete in one sport and saying, you know what, why don't you um, – Instead of doing that, that you're the best in the world at, why don't you, you know, uh, become a musician? <laughs> it's just, it's just a stupid strategy. And I, if, if I can get us to stop doing anything, it's, it's that. Well, and, and it's so interesting too that we don't not only maybe respect its value, but put any attention toward it. Um, I'm not going to say we, because you certainly have. And and one of the things that I was so surprised at that I hadn't thought of, and yet this is something I think about all the time, is the importance of communication and, and conversation, is how our economies are impacted when we don't communicate effectively. Yeah, and it just coming from a business perspective, the numbers are astounding. You know, the number one cause of project failure in the world is miscommunication, and the number one cause of miscommunication is overuse of email. It it goes up into the trillions of dollars, the amount of money we spend on miscommunication. But frankly, I don't even think that really captures it. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, a lot of times, turnover in a company is due to miscommunication or bad communication. And uh, turnover is incredibly expensive for companies. There's all kinds of things that could be, we, we wouldn't have to pay for. We could erase that cost if we just learned how to communicate better. In the workplace and, and you know, also at home, it's impossible to put a value on the amount of, uh, on the value of good communication with your spouse or partner or children, right? I mean, that there, there's no dollar amount for that. But at least in the business place, we can put a dollar amount on it, and it's huge. Well, you think about the energy and the dollars that have been, uh, and the attention that's been spent on healthcare in the last decade, and some of the numbers that you shared about the loss of effective healthcare and the dollars spent on it due to poor communication were just astounding. Yeah, and I guess when you start to think about it, when you trace that line down, it becomes understandable. You know, think about how much uh, needs to be communicated in a in a hospital setting and how difficult that communication becomes when either you're the patient and you're in pain or you're the family member or loved one and you are incredibly worried and stressed out. That's those kinds of conversations where one person is stressed are some of the most difficult anyone can have and yet people in hospitals have them all the time. And you go from that in which you're just trying to figure out um, 
symptoms and then you go to the n- amount of conversations that have to take place as people hand off care of patients from one shift to another or interpret a doctor's orders or interpret what occurred in in a in a surgery and then have to go back and relay that to either a patient or a family member. I mean, the number of difficult conversations that go on is astounding. And so it is no surprise that the, the again, it's difficult to talk about dollar amounts when you're talking about people's lives and their quality of life, but it is astounding the amount of money that gets, uh, that gets wasted and also the number of people whose lives are affected. You know, they start to count uh, deaths. And at this point, you know, and I, I wrote about this in the book, at this point, we really only know about a certain number of them because there were uh, lawsuits filed in those particular cases. And so we actually don't have a grip on how bad the problem is. Oh, yeah. If you think about all the times that weren't reported, but where someone veered off course, and then, you know, luckily got back on, um, it's got to be devastating. So okay, let's switch from dollar amounts to then something everyone can relate to and everyone is concerned with, which is our overall happiness levels. Um, How is our general happiness affected by miscommunication and and lack of um, substantial conversation? You know, it's interesting because uh, this is an area of research that's relatively new, and that's because we have not had the fMRI for all that long at an affordable price for people to use it. An fMRI is a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and people have probably seen some version of of an fMRI uh, machine or an MRI machine. It's a huge Uh, It takes up almost an entire room and people sort of slide in on this little dolly inside of it. But it allows us to watch the brain while someone working, while someone is still conscious. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. Um, And so one of the things we've been able to figure out is, is when a brain is happy and when it's not, just by watching where, what part of the brain is activated at any particular time. And so there's been this incredible new understanding of the way that socialization affects us. And and let me just boil it down to the simplest thing possible, which is that our number one need, after you get rid of, after you take care of survival, you know, food, shelter, water, after survival is taken care of, the number one need of a human being is belonging. That's it. Belonging trumps uh, spirituality. It trumps morality. It trumps all kinds of other needs that we have because the number one need that we have is to belong to a community and have social relationships. And so, of course, in recent years, as we've seen those social relationships deteriorate, you can absolutely imagine what's been going on. We have a, a epidemic, an epidemic of loneliness, of social isolation. And in fact, it's become so bad that the the United Kingdom, for example, appointed, created the position for minister of loneliness. And it's affecting not just people you might expect, like senior citizens, but the loneliest generation are the millennials. They're the loneliest of all those documented. And one has to imagine that as we, the next generation comes up, the one after the millennials, we might see similar or even worse numbers. And, and loneliness is as bad for you as smoking 12 cigarettes a day. It is as bad for you as being grossly obese. It is incredibly bad for you. We've even discovered that loneliness degrades your eternal, internal organs and takes years off your life. 
Okay, we'll just stop there, folks. Um, you know, let you, let you all stew on that for the next 45 minutes. So, so connected to that, to the sense of belonging, is the need and the ability to be, um, to understand and be understood, right? Just to be seen and understood and, and um, understand and then accepted. And the way that we do that, the avenue for that is effective communication and, and conversation. And I guess I'm going to probably say it throughout this interview. And yet, um, we aren't as good at it, most of us, as we thought. Um, that was something that you realized, I think, to your surprise, since your career has been focused on communicating and having conversations, um, speaking and listening. What was it that, that got you to realize? And when did you realize that maybe this was an area that you could learn more about and get more skilled at? So um, the big eye opener for me was uh, an incident that I describe in the book in which at the time I was the national host of a, of a radio show that came from Public Radio International called The Takeaway. Um, I was highly trained in interviewing, uh, so I should have been uh, better than pretty much everybody. And frankly, I, I probably was, you know. Um, this was something I did professionally was have these kind of structured conversations. And yet when some a serious problem arose at my workplace and I went to speak with my uh, my direct manager and those even higher up, I couldn't make those conversations work. And while I was sitting uh, in the office of my executive producer, I could feel the conversation going bad. And I couldn't get it back on track. I felt totally helpless. And I just thought to myself, man, I'm I'm supposed to be better at this than everybody, almost everybody else. Like what is going wrong? And that's when I really started to dive into some of not just the best advice, but the best research I could find. I, I, I add that caveat because when I started to delve into the best advice, it was the stuff that we've been hearing for decades, right? Maintain eye contact and say, uh-huh, and all those things that we've heard for generation after generation after generation. And what I found when I went to test those out in the studio was that none of them, not only did none of them really work or improve conversations, many of that, many of those pieces of advice made conversations worse. And that's how I ended up going back to original sources to say, okay, what is going on? Because it's like uh, when you do mirroring listening, right? If you're doing it sort of as something that's detached from the person that you're speaking with and having a conversation with, and you're sort of doing it to them. I remember being on a plane once and, and this guy said, oh, I tried it on my wife one time and she got really mad. And I was like, well, yeah, it's because you <laughs> tried it on her, right? Like you're, you're, you're doing these things sort of separate from the conversation and doing it to them as, as these tactics um, and techniques instead of applying them authentically. And I just want to say, I think you've, you've got to pat yourself on the back for that conversation that you had with your direct um, advisor because you went in with all the right uh, plan you know you you knew what you wanted from the conversation you had a game plan um, you had an intention for the result you set the stage like you did a lot of the things that you talk about in your book that need to happen um, and it made me think that there are so many different types of conversations and that people have different agendas so you went in with a certain agenda and clearly your boss had a very different one um, so it was almost like this um, tactical uh, exchange between the two of you and sort of who's going to win rather than this collaboration. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is the problem with so many difficult conversations is that we forget to start them from a place of common ground. Right. In that particular case, the number one goal for both of us was to make the show better. Right. I mean, that we shared that goal. And for me, I was trying to explain to him that the show is not better. It's 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 suffering because of this uh, abuse that's going on in my daily workplace. We did not start from that place of common ground. And that's one thing. Um, that's in, essential. I talk about it a little bit in the chapter on difficult conversations, finding what it is that you agree on. And in a workplace, at least, it's usually making sure that the business is is doing well, <laughs> right? I mean, oh, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's a shortcut. <laughs> and, and it's so much more difficult when it's an emotional conversation for one or both of the parties, right? When when that can can get in the way. So you talk about that as well, you know, when you need to take a break, kind of step back, um, you know, regather your thoughts and uh, remind yourself of where you're going and kind of pay attention to the speed with, with which you're progressing forward in those difficult conversations. It's interesting to me that so many people are uninterested in this topic, we think, and uninterested in talking to each other because we aren't doing it as much. Yet, 19 million people viewed your TED Talk. So yeah. people obviously care about this. Um, why do you think over it is... Over 20 that, million now. <laughs> over 20, okay. So and we another yeah. million. Um, so yeah. why do you think it is that we are not having more productive conversations now? I mean, all we have to do is, is look at the news on any given 10-second <laughs> interim, and we can see the, the problem with the polarization of our nation and, and the lack of conversation and communication skills. Yeah, and I think that... You, you know, what, emotion is one thing. Um, the, I think one of the issues lately that has perhaps changed a bit, I don't know, I wasn't around in 1900, right? Um, but I, one of the things I've noticed is how often we bring a, a, a sense of personal attachment to things that to which we do not need to be personally attached. We very quickly take it personally when people are talking about political issues. Um, and that's that's kind of what makes the stakes so very high at some of these things, at which make people uh, suddenly engage their fight or flight uh, instinct and be willing to just die on that hill. When If you step away and take a break, you realize, why the heck am I fighting about this? I don't even care. Um, and so there's, ar there's arguments occurring right now that really are just entirely unnecessary. And it's something you mentioned first is like giving people the permission to step away. And it's something that we have to do for not just ourselves, but for our loved ones is be self-aware enough to realize when we are becoming defensive or when we are becoming aggressive and say, oh, I, you know, I'm. I'm, I've gone beyond the point of being able to talk about this civilly. I need a moment and step away. You're so right. You're getting me thinking like we will sabotage ourselves and our own best interest to not back down. Like once we get into that space where it's, you know, this head to head competition, we have to have something that will allow us to shift away to be able to then say, okay, I'm not losing. I'm not backing down. I'm diverting. You had said we often make up our minds about people based on a few familiar terms they use. And we don't listen because we think we can predict everything they'll say. 
what can we do instead? So when this trigger um, gets ignited, like what, what is the option there? So, you know, keep in mind that this is natural uh, for all of us to do, right? Uh, it's, it's natural to search for shortcuts. Um, and by that, I mean, we can't sit there and really contemplate uh, every single thing that we hear. We wouldn't have time to do that. Um, there are three types of listening. There's evaluative. That's basically where you're sign- sort of just listening to see what you agree with and what you don't, right? You're just evaluating it. There's active where you're looking to respond and then there's transformative and transformative listening is when you are actually willing to be changed by what you hear and it I am not trying to say that you are going to be able to engage in transformative listening all the time that's not possible so it it is understandable that we sometimes take these shortcuts and someone says oh I voted for Barry uh, Bernie Sanders or whatever, and we suddenly think we know everything about them. But we have to constantly remind ourselves that no, the only thing we know about them is that they supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. That's it. You don't even know which part of his policies that person liked or didn't. In fact, that would be a good question. Why? Which of his policies did you actually like? It certainly doesn't tell you what kind of person that that they are. It doesn't tell you what they like, what they don't like. And most importantly, it doesn't tell you what you have in common. So that's the point at which you have to start asking questions. And I think reminding yourself to ask questions is a very good exercise. However, you you keep that reminder going because it will need to be a reminder. Just constantly stopping yourself from making assumptions and then ask instead. And, you know, I was thinking after I read the book, you pinpoint, you know, the the thought that we don't like as a society to ask questions. You know, the joke is always men, I won't ask for directions. But I think it, it's not gender based. I think it is a, a cultural thing that we somehow think asking questions is a weakness or puts us in a vulnerable position. There's something about it that we don't like. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we mistakenly believe are going to make us look weaker. And the and one of the other ones is, is saying things like, I don't know. But asking questions is sort of related to saying, I don't know, because when you ask a question, you are admitting you don't know the answer, right? Right. Um, yeah. But if and, Mark and, Twain can do it, we can do it. Right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. If Einstein can do it. <laughs> We can do it. If Stephen Hawking could do it, you know, some of the greatest minds in the world were the ones that asked the best questions. And and think about it this way. You already know everything you're going to say today. You know all of that already. You're not going to surprise yourself with any information that comes out of your mouth, which means if you're going to learn, you're going to learn from other people. So asking questions is a way for you to constantly be improving your mind. One of the things I love that you said in your book, you said, listening to someone doesn't mean agreeing with them. The purpose of listening is to understand, not endorse. I think exactly we, need, right. we need to build a few thousand billboards of that, some bumper stickers and some t-shirts, um, because I think we've lost sight of that. I, 
I agree with you. And and there seems to be, people seem to be making a virtue out of not listening to people they disagree with. Uh, and I've heard, you know, you know, I'm mixed race. I hear all the time. Um, I'm not going to, I don't need to talk to that, that racist. They have nothing to say to me that I'm interested in. And I, I put a couple examples in the book of of African Americans who literally have done that very thing, listened at length to racist people, and thereby brought about an, a, a truly miraculous transformation. I'm not saying that you need to spend all your time listening to racists. I'm just saying that racism um, is not going to change if we ignore it. And perhaps creating an empathic bond with another person is the most effective way to instigate change. You can't cause someone else to change, but you can open up the possibility for it by creating an empathic bond. And the way that you do that is by listening. And how difficult do you think it is for two people to find some element of common ground, even in a short conversation? Not at all. I tell people to play the um, three to five questions game. So if if I'm about to get into an argument with someone, which happens regularly because they find out I'm a journalist and they decide to debate me about politics, um, I'll say, you know, stop. We're not going to agree on that. So, you know, I bet you in three questions, I can find something we have in common. And it's usually like dogs or tacos. <laughs> And that's you know, enough, right? Yeah, it is. It's absolutely a TV show. Yeah, absolutely. Something to remind you that you're both human, that you both go home at the end of the night tired and, you know, wanting to, to spend time with people that you love. It just humanizes us for each other. And the other thing I will say is do not try to have substantive conversations online over social media or Facebook or anywhere else. All of the research repeatedly tells us that those conversations are, are will change nothing and will probably uh, cause you unneeded stress. And yet, I'm throwing in another and yet. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so you developed some rules on things like how to focus, avoiding tangents, when, when you can tangent, um, setting time limits, paying attention to how long you're talking for, and staying out of the weeds. Let's talk a little bit about the weeds. Uh, how do you recognize them? And um, when should they be avoided? And, and why? So, you know, the weeds is a, is a journalistic term. And it, and it we say someone has gone into the weeds when they're just listing off details that nobody needs to hear and that doesn't actually progress the story. You know, a, a rule of thumb, my editor at NPR used to always tell me that a story is like a shark. It has to keep moving or it dies. Um, and yet we tend to throw in all these details that kill the shark. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, this is an example I gave in the TED Talk where I said, you know, we'll say, uh, someone will say to us, um, Oh, I'm going to, I don't know, Croatia next year. And they'll say, oh, my God, we went a few years ago. You're just going to love it. We went in 2012. Oh, no, you know, wait. It, we went before Susan graduated. So it would have been, that would have had been 20. Oh, no, wait, because we didn't have the Subaru yet. So it would have been, maybe it was 2013. No, wait. You know, and in the meantime, you have lost them. They are not listening to you 
anymore because none of those details matter to anybody but you. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is at all times your brain is supplying you with information. It's searching through the archives. It's trying to find not just data, but experiences and emotions that might relate to what you're hearing and what you're saying. Your brain is trying to help you put the world into context. But that information is for you. <laughs> it's not for other people, because that's how you kill the shark. And so if you're someone who tends to go off into the weeds, how can you recognize that you have now veered off path and need to rein yourself back in? So one of the, the best and most effective things you can do is tell people you're trying to stop doing that and say, can you help me? If I start doing that, just grab my sleeve. Um, bring other people in. <laughs> and, because and, they're habits and patterns that you, yeah. have to, you have to shift them in that way. Absolutely. And, and the other people are going to be your best help at, um, at stopping to do that. Sometimes those habits are completely so ingrained that doing it on your own would be very difficult. You know, they don't recommend uh, breaking habits on your own for almost anything right? If, whether it's smoking or uh, weight loss or whatever it is, they always say bring someone else in because <laughs> it'll make it easier. And the same is true for conversational habits. Um, and it, you're just not going to notice every single time that you do it. But sometimes becoming aware of it is, is the most important first step. And often frightening, right? Like, oh, I didn't realize I interrupted so often or went into the weeds so often or, or went wool gathering. Um, so one of the other aspects that you mentioned that I think would be surprising to people, it was surprising to me was when someone is talking about something and you then share uh, something in your personal life that is to your mind relevant and maybe an attempt to connect on a deeper level to tell this person, oh, I've had that same experience, but that it can go very awry. And I actually tested it <laughs> with some um, new people I met at dinner the other night where this gal was talking about a business that she had started. And, uh, you know, I was, I was very conscious about waiting, letting her talk way beyond the 40 seconds. And then I shared, oh, I have some friends that had started a similar business recently, thinking that this would be of interest to her because here was maybe an, an avenue for her to find out more, maybe not make the same mistakes. As soon as I mentioned it, she stopped talking, grabbed her phone and started checking her texts. So maybe yeah. you could explain that phenomenon a little bit. So uh, it, first of all, I want to say it's understandable that not just you did it, but all of us do that. And I shared a an instance in which I did that, which was incredibly painful. It's still painful to me. <laughs> I mean, even I've had to read that, that passage aloud um, at a couple book readings, and it's still difficult to get through. And I understand where it comes from. We think, like you did, that you're being helpful. Um, sometimes, especially in cases of tragedy or struggle, we think we're showing empathy and we're saying something like, I've been through this too, you can make it, and in those horrible words, I know how you feel. Um, but this is problematic for a number of reasons. And let me start with why I know how you feel is so bad. It's not true. It is never true. Our brains... Um, do a very valuable service for us. And that is that as soon as something painful has occurred, your brain immediately gets to work softening the memory of that pain, whether it be emotional or physical. And we need it to do that 
Because if you remembered what it felt like to give birth, for example, <laughs> for the rest of your life, you would be dysfunctional. You wouldn't be able to go forward. Like the memory of that pain would be absolutely disabling. And the same is true if you remember the first time you get your heart broken. We don't actually remember what that was like because our brain has smeared Vaseline on that lens for us. So if someone's telling you that they their dog died and you say, oh, my dog died two years ago, I know how you feel – you're lying. You don't. You don't actually know how they feel. It has been softened for you. And that's how you end up saying the wrong thing, like you're going to be okay. That's how it feels to you two years away from losing your dog or your family member or your job. But that is not how they feel. Um, so that's the first problem with it. Go ahead. You're about to say something. No, no. Oh, so the other, the other problem I'm listening, with it. Celeste. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> The other problem was that is it's it's rarely helpful. Um, it's it's rarely doing what you think that it is. In most cases, what happens is that we either don't know what to say, and so we default to the subject we know best, which is ourselves. This is in cases of like pain or struggle or tragedy. Or in your case, um, we just want to add in. Hey, I know something about that. I know about this. I can talk about this. Um, but on their end, that is not achieving what you think it is. It is what uh, sociologists have called conversational narcissism, which is our cr very creative skill in being able to turn conversations back to us and what we know. So it is better just to, you know, ask questions. You could have started asking her questions about her business. Um, so to get her talking more. Sometimes people will ask you, hey, you owned a business. And I, and I talk about this in the book where a, a, one of my friends had asked me, hey, you got divorced a couple years ago. I need some advice. Then the floodgates are open. You have been invited to share your experience. Please do so. Otherwise, keep it to yourself. So I'm thinking that's where it gets a little tricky, right? Because what if you are speaking to someone who is a conversational narcissist, and they've been talking the whole time? Um, or they, you know, you feel like somehow the game of catch that you talk about, uh, the back and forth game of catch is out of balance. And you also don't want to be so in your head that you're trying to figure out, oh, is it my turn to talk or not? Because then you've broken another rule of not focusing. So it, it's like a dance in a way. How do you know when to take over the lead, um, especially in a new, a new relationship. It's different when you know someone well, and you maybe have some established understanding of their conversational patterns. But what about in something like a cocktail party or a dinner with people that primarily don't know the majority of the guests? How do you figure so, out that dance? There's a couple things. Oftentimes, um, with a conversational narcissist, they don't realize that they're doing it. Um, think of how many times you may have offered similar experiences like the one you did and not even realized it. Um, so it, it, sometimes gentle reminders, for example, I, this just happened to me recently in which I was talking to a guy, 70 year old guy, and he just wouldn't stop talking. So I have a decision to make. I can either just suck it up and just listen and understand that changing someone else's behavior is well nigh impossible or I can try to uh, very softly prod him which is what I did so I started a story and he interrupted me and, and and talked and then I said hey could I get back to the story I was telling I'd love to finish telling you that story 
And he said, oh, of course, sure. And then I began talking again and he interrupted again. And so a second time I said, hey, do you mind if I finish what I was telling you earlier in just as, as pleasant and kind a way as I possibly could? Now, by the third time that happened, he had caught on <laughs> that. And he said, I keep interrupting you. I'm so sorry. Um, and so he began to police himself. I did finish that story eventually. It took a little while. But if this is going to be a relationship that you're going to continue in the future, it's it's worth the effort. Now, if you do that three times and it still doesn't change anything, just suck it up or walk away. <laughs> Find another conversational partner um, because you can't you really can't change other people's behavior. That's the bad news. The good news is if you change your own behavior and you start dealing with your own issues, human beings are evolutionarily designed to learn by modeling other people's behavior. It's why, you know, if you start a new job and you show up in a three-piece suit and you walk into the office and see everybody in cargo shorts and sandals, you will not come back in that suit the next day. We are just designed to fit in. So if you change your own behavior, and this is someone with whom you have a regular relationship, it will most likely change their behavior too. I just want to say, if you feel happier in that suit, I would encourage you to keep wearing it regardless of how everyone else is dressed. Um, I, I agree. So, so let's talk about that aspect of our relationships that are affected due to a lack of our, our good conversational skills. Because as you're just explaining in this story with the gentleman, it wasn't that he didn't care about your story or that he wasn't interested in you or that he 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 didn't want to hear it. It was more based on his skills as a conversationalist and his habitual patterns. Um, and so our relationships, new and old can be very much affected by our, our lack of skills. In what ways are, are they suffering? Um, so the most important way is that you're not, you're not actually getting to know someone if you're not listening to them. Listening is very difficult for us, but that is the way that we actually humanize one another and get to know their their innermost thoughts. It's also how you um, build trust between another person. So you, you know, Ralph Nichols, who was called the father of listening, because he did all the seminal work into studying listening. One of the things he said was that the most basic of all human needs is the need to understand and be understood. And the best way to listen to pe- the best way to understand people is to listen to them. I'm probably paraphrasing. So if what you're trying to do is understand somebody else, as he pointed out, the most effective way to do that is to listen to what they're saying to you. It's also uh, the most effective way to increase your empathy, for example. I mean, you, empathy can be increased. You can uh, read a novel. You can play in a, a band or, or an orchestra. You could sing in a choir. But the number one way is to listen to someone else's perspectives and uh, thoughts and experiences. So you're creating an empathic bond with another person that is just, there's no replication for the empathic bond between two human beings created by effective communication. 
I mean, if that's what you're looking to do is create a strong relationship, listening is, I cannot think of a better way to do it than to listen to the other person. Which you should be interested in because we said at the outset of the show that belonging was the most important exactly. thing after you've been fed and clothed. Um, and you talk about the four simple ways to increase empathy. And I think empathy deserves a little bit of our attention and you give it quite a bit in the book and talk about the distinction between empathy and compassion, which is important. And even empathy itself, I think people have confusion on because we always have heard that saying, oh, you know, imagine walking in their shoes. And, and it's trickier than that because it's not how would you feel in their shoes. It's how do they feel walking in their shoes? Um, yes. And, and what absolutely. are so so what are the four uh, things we can do? Because you just hit them all, all four of those nails on the head as far as how we can be more empathic really simply. I need to make sure I say these right. Hold on a second. Um, let me get a copy of my book so I make sure I do them. Hold on one second. Or, or, or no, I'll, I'll share them <laughs> oh, yeah, with you. Yeah. Um, so I wrote them down. So active listening, sharing in other people's joy, looking for commonalities with others, and paying attention to faces. Yes. Okay, so I wanted to go to active listening first, mostly because this is something we've already touched on. And as I explained, the three different types of listening, evaluative, active, and transformative, you don't have to be... Uh, listening in a transformative way in order to increase your empathy. You just have to be actively listening, which means that you're really hearing what they're saying and you're listening uh, in order to respond, not in order to actually just say what's on your mind, right? You're, you're hearing what they say, you're considering it, and then you're responding to what they've said, um, which is often not what we do, right? We just wait for them to stop talking so then we can start talking again. Also sad. Very much so. I will say, though, that a lot of people want to blame that on technology, and we've been doing that for a lot longer than we've had smartphones. So, you know, it's not your, your phone's fault per se. Um, then you can talk about something like uh, – let me just go to looking at faces because this, again, is an evolutionary superpower. Um, and it's not just faces, but it's body language as well. You can see a, a really good friend walk towards you and say, hey, what's wrong, right? I mean, you can tell in their body language, you can see it in their face. And uh, side note, this happens all the time on the phone, right? Where someone will call you and they'll say, hi, and you say, what's wrong? Because you know immediately from one syllable, that is how quickly this information is relayed from one human being to another, just through our, our body language, our facial expressions, and through the sound of their voices. These are the things that we're losing when we use email too much, when we text instead of call. It's this, this uh, intangible information that cannot be replicated through any other communication medium at this point in time. Um, the, what was the third well, one? Well, I, I'm going to intervene just for a second on that because um, the, I just want to make sure we get this into the conversation. And this seems like an apt juncture because it's, it's relevant to exactly what you're saying as far as multitasking. Yeah. Because people think that they can multitask. Yes, and they can't. And listen, I thought I could multitask. It used to be on my resume under special skills. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, but the human brain can't do it. There is, a, there is a tiny percentage of people, and I think it's somewhere between two, maybe around 2% of people in the world, who can um, switch between tasks rapidly 
which is really what we're doing when we're trying to multitask without losing um, quality of those tasks of the work that we're doing. The problem is everyone thinks they're among that 2%. And statistically, that math doesn't work. <laughs> I also think they need to test if those 2% can do it after having children. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is has a that super skill been diminished? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, but no, you, you probably can't multitask. It's highly unlikely you're in the 2% that can do it without losing cognitive function. I mean, that's the really scary part is that multitasking. And that means you're on the phone with your friend, but you're also watching a movie or you're also answering email or you're also paging through Twitter. Your brain can't do that. It's, it's not only is it losing 20%, 25% quality for both tasks, but it's losing a huge amount of time because there's another part of the brain that gets engaged just to kind of decide where to put the priority and which thing to switch to or not to switch to. So all of a sudden, instead of one part of your brain focusing on one task, talking to your friend, you then switch over to another part of the brain to try to do something else. And then you bring this third part of the brain in to try to figure out their sort of performing triage, right? So you lose, by some estimates, 40% of your productivity to switch costs. And, you know, it's, it's useful to understand that your IQ also drops by 10 to 12 points, we just, our brains are not designed to work that way. And um, it's best if you stop doing it. It will, because trying to multitask shoots dopamine into your brain, it will make you, it will give you the illusion of productivity and energy. But dopamine dissipates very quickly. And at the end of the day, if you've been riding dopamine highs and lows all day long, you're going to be exhausted. That's like eating Snicker bars all <laughs> yeah, every meal. Absolutely. And how are you going to feel? Okay, so we were talking about the four simple ways to increase empathy. And we've nailed active listening. And part of that is do not multitask. And you gave some other ways um, to, to really get to become a better active listener. And then uh, the paying attention to faces. So that cannot be done. Um, well, I guess it could be done on the phone now. So I take that back. Well, at least FaceTime if you're going to be on the phone. Um Instead of texting an email, maybe they can have a FaceTime texting. That'll be the next thing. Uh, so the other two are sharing in other people's joy and looking for commonalities. Yeah, and we've kind of touched on the commonalities as well, but let's let's do it really quickly again, which is finding what it is that you have as a common goal or a common interest. And you will be surprised at how quickly that gives you something to talk about. Sometimes um, in, in searching for a common interest, you'll discover that that, that person um, knows a whole bunch about something that is fascinating to you. <laughs> right? I mean, it may be that I, I, I met one person whose uh, their hobby was um, repairing Barbies. Um, and so they had spent their off time g g gathering not just Barbie dolls, but any of those kind of dolls and just repairing them and then giving them to to uh, shelters, especially uh, victims of domestic violence and stuff. That was their hobby. That was fascinating to me, how you go about doing that. So even though that was not a common uh, hobby of ours, it was a common interest because I was fascinated. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, it, I doesn't do. necessarily it doesn't necessarily matter like what the topic is, right? And that can be a transformative conversation right there. And you never would have anticipated that, that you would have it with that person or that it would be about Barbie's. 
Absolutely. Oh, and, you know, another example is that, you know, I've worked for 20 years for NPR and, and PRI. There's a lot of people in the world that love NPR. And so for us, that becomes a common interest because they're fascinated by it. They have a lot of questions and that becomes something that we can talk about that has nothing to do with um politics, not really, um, and, and all of the other things that we might argue about. You know, there's this great blog called, uh, I don't want to swear, but it's called Stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> My Dad Says. <laughs> and um, it's just basically this son who records all the witty and and crazy stuff that his dad says. And they're usually hilarious. So one of the things that's in there is that he, his dad at some point said to me, you know, why do you want to talk? You know, why are you so worried about this one person who doesn't like you? Do you go to the, go to the park and sit down next to the only pile of dog poop? And I use this as an example of, you don't have to talk about the one thing you disagree on. You know, if the other person is a Trump supporter and you can't, you don't want to talk about it, don't talk about it. Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> so find something else. And that's what the common ground is. And I, and I want to move on to joy because in a certain sense, there these things are related. All four of these things are related. Um, instead of being competitive with someone else, instead of making comparisons between you and another person, finding what gives them joy and, and finding joy for yourself in that is so powerful and so incredible. And we also have studies that show that if you begin a conversation by letting the other person uh, experience a sense of pride and happiness, they're way more likely to be open-minded and um, willing to engage with you than under other circumstances. So if you, you know, if you start a conversation by saying, hey, what's the best thing that's happened to you this past month? Or what are you proudest of, say, for the last week? Um, if you start there, it's actually going to give them a, a platform to start on, not just to talk about themselves, and we already mentioned how much people love that, right? But um, it's also going to start it in a way that they're way more open-minded and engaged and happy. Okay, I'm just wondering if you could share that tidbit of information with the higher-ups at the Democratic Party. <laughs> they can start a new email and texting campaign with that approach. And it would be so much more effective. We all want to be on a team that is more positive and there's more hope as to actually accomplishing something. You know, people underestimate how much that does for you to let someone else feel joy. And, and, and this goes back to, you know, what people call the helper's high, which is when you help someone else out for no reason except just to help somebody else. It, it produces this incredible rush of oxytocin and serotonin, um, which are the better hormones for your brain as opposed to dopamine. And it creates what's called a helper's high. It, in some cases, creates a, a, a sense of euphoria that's equal to have just having run uh, several miles. So, I mean, if you can even get a tiny bit of that by allowing someone else to tell you what brings them joy, I mean, imagine your whole, your whole day filled with that. You say this with the other um, statement in the book that I, I loved. You said, a good conversation is not necessarily an easy one. There are subjects so sensitive and topics so emotionally charged that discussions about them can be tricky and even dangerous. There is not a human being on this planet with whom you have nothing in common, and there is no topic so volatile that it cannot be spoken of. 
Yeah, and we've kind of lost sight of that, right? Um, I don't believe in things that can't be talked about. I mean, we're we're human beings. We are Homo sapiens. Talking about stuff is is a survival skill. It's not something we were supposed to learn how to do by watching Sesame Street and then forget as we became adults. Um, I don't believe in safe spaces uh, because the world isn't safe. It's not, but it can be a kind place. Maybe not safe, but kind. Um, so you can begin a difficult conversation and lay some groundwork and say, this is tough. And my, my goal is for us to get through this without hurting anybody's feelings. So if you're beginning to feel upset, please know in advance that it's not my intention. And we can take a break at any time or just point it out. And let's just start from this understanding that neither one of us intends to hurt the other one. Um, and then move forward. And that you can learn to be better at it. That was, I was so impressed with, with you um, and your book, but with you in the fact that you set, set out, you said, oh, this is something that is important and that I maybe could be better at. And I think that's so brave to say, I can improve here. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. I, I, I've never reached a point where I, where I don't have room to improve. And, and frankly, I just want to be clear about this. I'm not a perfect communicator. I screw up all the time. And the reason I am now an expert in this subject is because I did all of these 10 things I'm telling other people not to do. <laughs> which, which is the fantastic part, right? Because so often people will write books about things um, or, or delve more deeply in a topic that they're already good at, that they already know about. Um, and, and not that you weren't good at it, uh, you know, prior, but that you saw the areas where you were challenged. And I just think, you know, that is, is a lesson for everyone in that, right, we can all be better at this. And it's so important. And, and it's so important that we, as you mentioned, like we're humans, we want stimulation, we want provocative conversation, we want to connect and belong. And, and this is the avenue for, for getting there. Oh, absolutely. It's also the avenue for just learning some really cool stuff from other people. I mean, you know, that's how I end the TED Talk is, you know, prepare to be amazed. And that's not just a catchphrase. I mean, that's literally has been my philosophy now for 20 years. And it has, I've heard some amazing stories. You know, in January, I took two weeks out and I, I traveled the entire country around the entire nation on a train. Um, and I just went every single day, you know, when you're, when you're an overnight train on Amtrak, everyone eats in the dining room for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they just put you at whatever table has a seat open, right? So you're going to be eating all of your meals with strangers. And I just sat there and listened to people telling me their stories. And it was freaking astounding, the stories that people had of murder and love and sacrifice and just incredible, um, and I just kept a blog going of here's the stories I, I heard today. And, and this is what people are missing out on. You know, you're, you're, everybody's anxious to get to Netflix and see the next new Netflix story. You don't realize there are amazing people sitting next to you all the time that have stories that are better than whatever the Netflix show is. And it's as analog as it could be, it's completely inexpensive. It requires no advanced technology besides the advanced technology that's in your head. Um, and, and you're missing out if you're not listening to other people's stories. You really are. 
And if we think about our experience listening to StoryCorps, we all know that to be true, right? I, I love that you said if anyone's crying, you know, you know it's because they're listening to StoryCorps. We've all been That's moved. true <laughs> on Friday mornings. So, so what would you say is the underlying purpose of all the strategies and tools um, for being a better conversationalist? What, what is it that they share? The the whole purpose is just to get people actually conversing with one another again. And by that, I mean a conversation, i.e. a mutual exchange of ideas. Um, because we aren't learning from one another and we're not negotiating and collaborating with one another much anymore. We are all just sort of our own little islands. We've bought into this idea that there's such a thing as a a, a lonely genius or something and we're all we're out there working for ourselves not realizing that the human beings work best together we are a collective intelligence not an individual intelligence so changing the way we converse with one another improving the way we talk and the way we listen is going to make the world a better place i mean i, I you know i'm not trying to sound naive i've been a journalist for a long time but that's just the truth 2020, we are a collaborative nation. <laughs> we have a lot of t-shirts and bumper stickers we, we got to get going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Too many to too many to count. But yes, collective intelligence. We are collectively wise and individually foolish. Ooh, there we go. Okay, that's the first shirt. Well, thank you so much, Celeste. It was great talking to you. It's great reading your book. Um, and p people can get your books everywhere, listen to yeah. your TED Talk, just uh, put it into the computer. And what sort of will be your focus, do you think, in these next few years going forward? Um, well, I have a new book coming out next year from uh, Penguin Random House, which um, what we were talking about in terms of multitasking, I sort of took that the next step and expanded sort of some su things that have happened in our culture that are also making life harder for us, which nobody needs. Um, but, you know, improving people's conversations will be my task for the rest of my life, most likely. Um, and, and that's always been my focus. To the benefit of us all. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for okay. having me. Great talking to you, Celeste. You too. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.